0: Who likes change? Raise your hand. Like, you just thrive on it. Moving to a new house, getting a new job, moving to a new town, you're like, yes. It's been said that the only person that likes change is a wet baby. (laughs) I add on to that also a guy with a sign on the corner. They'll take change as well. They like change. The other one I really like, and I have this saying written at home because it makes me ponder, um, the only people that can't change are the truly wise and the incredibly stupid. (laughs) Selah. (laughs) Right? Which one are you? Like, am I stubbornly correct or am I stupidly wrong? (laughs) Which am I? Well, we're going to see seismic change in this chapter. Saul has changed. Ananias, a guy, his view is changed. The conflict for the church is changed. A bedridden man is changed. And a dead woman is changed. And then even on top of that, we'll kind of move into, and we did it on Sunday, Peter. His perception of the gospel and its power is changed. It's just like this massive tidal wave of change. So let's jump in. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Saul is sold out to getting Christians, isn't he? Like he's committed to it. He's done as much damage as he could in Jerusalem. So he is committed. He walks 150 miles up to Damascus, the oldest continually inhabited city in the world, walks there because he says, I want to do more of this. What are you so committed to that you'd walk 150 miles to go do it? There'll be no 7-Elevens on the way, no Slurpees, right, what are you so committed to that you would walk 150 miles for? I don't think the list is long for us today, all right? That's from here to past Eugene. Not much. And I said last week, Paul has adopted a different thing than his teachers did. He moved from live and let live of Gamaliel to another guy, Shammai, who says, we need to defend the Torah with sword, like Phineas, like Joshua, cleansing the land from impurities. He's gone on a rampage. Now he's wrong, but I sure admire his passion. I sure admire that. And he'll take that same passion he had against Jesus. He's going to, it's gonna flip now, and he's gonna have it for Jesus. He's gonna be flogged, and bad stuff will happen to him. In Acts 14... He is stoned to death, drug out of the city and left for dead. Comes back to life or wasn't actually dead. And guess where he goes? Back inside the city, just right back in there. You know what I'd do? I'd retire <laughs> or at least take a day off. Nope, I'm right back at it. You can't take me out. Come on, try that, try it again. What are we so committed to that we would be like Paul. The reason I think the world gets flipped on its head is because Paul is so committed to Jesus. Are we that committed to the kingdom in Grants Pass, in Josephine County, in our own families? Are we that committed? I hope we're open to that kind of commitment because that's what changes the world. It's Paul's commitment. I'll walk 150 miles to do this. It's that kind of commitment that changes the world, right? So Paul sees this light, falls to the ground, Saul saw, why are you persecuting me? And he goes, Who are you, Lord? You ever get a random text and you're like, Who is this? I don't have a phone, so all I have is a Google Voice, but it, it acts like uh, texting, but it never, it doesn't remember anyone's name. So every single number is like, Who is this? So I'm always like, um, Who is this? Unless I've memorized their name. And so he's like, Who is this? And you can just kind of see, like, he's like, Oh no, it's Jesus. Oops. Giant oops, mega oops, I can't believe this. And the crew around him, you just gotta be thinking like, what is this crew that was as, you know, at least as dedicated as he is to go and travel 150 miles and do this? They're like, what's up? And he's blinded. Blinded by the light. Makes you wanna sing that song. (laughs) But I won't, I'll spare you. Because the lyrics are just weird, aren't they? You're like, what is he saying? He's blinded by the light. And here's what's amazing. God lets him stay blinded for three days. What would you think if you had a massive light? Why are you persecuting me? Go sit in the city. I mean, what are you thinking to yourself? God's gonna pound me, right? That's what he's gonna be thinking. God's gonna pound me. I'm gonna be blind for the rest of my life. I don't know what else is gonna happen to me, but minimally, I'm going to be blind for the rest of my life. So for three days, Paul, Saul, terrified, shocked, guilty, despair, and God lets him sit for three days. He doesn't immediately help him. He doesn't go, hey, Ananias, by the way, get over there right away, because you know, Saul's really unhappy right now. God lets Saul be unhappy for three days. To me, that is just so important. It is okay to let people sit and be unhappy for a while. Sometimes you need to sit and be unhappy for a while. Go sit in the corner and think about it. That's what Paul has to do. Think about what you've been doing. So I have this study from the University of Toronto on this. And what they found was this, is that um, if people try to gloss over negative stuff, despair, guilt, shame, they rarely function well as humans. The worst thing you do about guilt, shame, and all that kind of stuff, is to be upset that you're upset. Like, why am I so upset about this? Well, you're killing Christians. You should probably be upset at right now, right? One of the healthiest things is to be like, no, there's a legitimate reason for me to feel guilty right now. And I should probably sit and think about this for a while and, and contemplate it and look at my despair and ask myself, why do I feel this way? They say, that's the best question you can ask. Why am I feeling despair? Why am... It's what the Psalmist does in the Psalms. Saul, so why art thou disquieted within me? That's the healthiest thing you can ever do. For three days, Saul sits and says, why? Why is this, am I gonna be blind for life? Why, why? And here's what I love, he fasts. And I can almost guarantee, it doesn't say it in the text, but I bet he's praying. If you have a bomb dropped on you, the best thing in the world is to fast and pray. I don't know how to deal with this. This thing that happened to me, this issue, this relationship, I need to fast and pray. So for three days, he just fasts and prays, love that. Now, if you've been tracking with Acts and what God's Spirit is doing through Luke, there's mass conversions for the first seven chapters. 3,000 get saved, 5,000 are added. Massive numbers, multiplying. And then it's like Luke slows down and he starts giving us snapshots of what conversion looks like. An Ethiopian eunuch, we see that conversion. Saul of Tarsus, we see that conversion. Cornelius in the next chapter, we see that conversion. So you have an Ethiopian eunuch who's a broken seeker and what God does with him is unique. And then in chapter nine, you have Saul, who's a hater of Christianity. And what God does with him is unique. And then we get to Cornelius, who's a good guy. He's Rotary Club, right? He's a good guy. And God does something different with Cornelius. I say that because there's this tendency inside of certain frameworks to see the Bible is what they do is they call it the ordu salutis, which is a fancy way of saying how you get saved, the order of salvation. And they try to mechanize it like this is how God works every time. And whenever somebody does that to me, I always take them to one of these guys. Whatever their framework is, one of these guys breaks their framework. Hold on a second, right? So someone that's uh reformed Calvinist is like, well, we never looked for God. Well, man, Cornelius sure seemed to look like he was looking for God. God-fearer, prayed, gave alms. Man, it sure looked like he was seeking. The Ethiopian eunuch traveled how many th- Miles, to come up and go to the temple, man, it sure looked like he was, had some kind of inkling, right? Now, I'm not saying that God doesn't draw us, but it's a partnership. So I always turn to one of these guys and say, wait a second. And what I believe about salvation is this. God wants people saved and he's gonna do it whatever way he wants. Psalm 115, three. God is in heaven and he does what he wants. And we may have an order of salvation that we say, this is how it happens. And God says, okay, Fine. I'm gonna do it this way though, because I'm God and I can. And I ultimately, Second Peter chapter 3, verse nine, want people to be saved. Our job, I think, is just to rejoice when people get saved. I don't have to figure out how they got saved. I just rejoice. Tell me your testimony, man. How'd that happen? Tell me Acts eight. Tell me Acts nine. Tell me Acts 10. Tell me Acts 16, Lydia. Tell me how it happened so I can rejoice with you. So Paul now. Sitting, three days, no food, fasting, wondering what's gonna happen, thinking he's probably gonna face a lifetime of blindness. Here's what God does, verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. Remember his name? That name was solely in chapter five with the guy who sold some property, pretended he gave everything to the church, didn't, dropped dead. It's like God's redeeming names. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight, still exists in Damascus. At the house of Judas, that name been sullied before? Yeah. So Saul is staying at the house of Judas. Look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. So minimally, he's praying right there. I think he was fasting and praying the whole time. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go for he is a chosen instrument of mine Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. So Ananias, he's a good guy. Verse 10 says he's a disciple, right? He loves Jesus. He hears from Jesus. That'd be our dream, right? To hear audibly the voice of Jesus. Really good guy. What I want you to notice is his opinion of Saul versus God's opinion of Saul. His opinion, verse 13, he's an evil man. He's going around doing evil. You want me to go talk to Bashar al-Assad? Don't you know what he's been doing? He's an evil man. I don't wanna go talk to that guy, right? Am I being punked here? Is there a camera on? I mean, come on, God. All the believers right now are having yard sales and they're moving out of Damascus because of this guy. Like, we all know how bad he is. Are you kidding me? He's evil. How does God see Saul? Look at verse 15. He is a chosen instrument of mine. There's a massive biblical theology to that text, I won't go into that idea. He's a chosen instrument of mine. The simple point is this who do you think like? Do you think like Ananias? Evil, those people are evil, those people are evil. Or do you think like God? They could be chosen vessels. Do you think about people in their potential or do you think about people in their problems? How about yourself? How do you view yourself? Do you think about yourself as a problem or do you think about yourself as a chosen vessel of God Almighty? I hope you think like Jesus. Because the Bible says that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to have the mind of Christ. We're supposed supposed to be thinking like Jesus thinks. And Jesus does not think like we think. He doesn't see us as our past. And then like many of us do, because of somebody's past, we almost always define their future by their past. Well, this is what that person has done. This is who they are. So this is what they're always going to be. So we just kind of tag people and then pigeonhole them. God didn't do that to Saul. He's a chosen vessel of mine. He's gonna take the gospel all over the place. He's gonna be brilliant. You have to trust me. I hope and pray we do that because when we don't, we discount the power of God to change people. And when we discount the power of God to change people, what I've seen in the Bible is this. God just says, fine, I won't, right? Read Matthew chapter 11. Read Hebrews chapter three. Because of unbelief, they limited the Holy One of Israel. I want us to believe, God, you have the power to change my son, my wife, my husband, my uncle, my brother, whatever it is, you have the power to do that. And I'm not gonna peg them as evil, rather I'm gonna see them in what their potential could possibly be. That's how God sees you and me. So he lays his hand on him, he obeys, he's like, okay, I'll trust you, God, I'll trust you. Lays his hands on him, calls him brother, and then, right, fill the Holy Spirit Regains his sight, and there's this cryptic little thing. Immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes. Now, what is that? He's a doctor. He's a historian that even uh, secular historians say he's a good historian. He's a good job. He's correct. He's thorough. He explains things. He's a good historian. So. What is this? You try to look it up, try to figure it out, like no one knows. The one thing that people say is this. The word scale, it's also used of fish and the Leviathan in the Septuagint, which was the Bible that these guys would have been reading. Luke would have read the Septuagint. So it could very well be that these scales are a blinding of the enemy because Paul will talk a lot about that Throughout the scriptures, that the enemy can actually blind you. You can be blinded by him. Could be that. I don't know. But here's what I do know: He seems to have an eye problem from this time forward. So you go to Galatians chapter 4, and he's talking to this group of people and trying to correct them, and he goes, Hey, I know you guys love me. It's verse 15. You would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me if you could. So he's got some kind of eye problem. And We have a couple descriptions of Saul, later Paul. And one of them says he was weak eyed and his eyes were always kind of, um, uh, I don't wanna use that word, goopy. I'll use the word goopy, right? (laughs) Have you ever talked to somebody with really goopy eyes? How hard is that, right? So I, I haven't dealt with that so much, but I babysat my sister's dog once. It was a chihuahua. And chihuahuas have funky eyes anyways, right? It looks like someone squeezed their body and just went, popped their eyes out. So it it had those big eyes and his name was Doogie and Doogie was not used to being out in the country. So it just barked all night. So I had to put him away in my study during the night and in the morning I'd come and then open it up and he'd come out and he'd get out of his little bed and he had eye problems. He just had this just goopy stuff that would go from like the top to the bottom. And remember, I'd let him out and just be like, oh. And I'd go in and sometimes we'd have oatmeal and I'd be like, can't do it. Just cannot do it. Nah, I'm fasting. I'm gonna fast and pray this morning. <laughs> like it's hard. And he's, he's probably gonna face that for his entire ministry. Hard. All the things that he must suffer for the sake of my name. When you look at Paul and what he accomplished, It's incredible. It's just, it's, it's unimaginable how much this guy, how much this guy accomplishes. Minimally, this verse means that his eyes were open to Jesus, that now he began to see the truth. And he would actually pray that for the church at Ephesus. Oh, that the eyes of your understanding would be enlightened so that you might know what are the riches of the glory of God's inheritance in the saints. Great prayer to pray. Oh, Lord, that I might know how much your riches are in me. That's what he's saying right there. That you would know how much God has invested in you, how much he loves you, how much you are his inheritance. So like in the Old Testament, Israel was God's inheritance. The Levites were God's inheritance. New Testament is you and I are God's inheritance. And when you understand how, import, how costly, how much you matter to him, it transforms you that you are his chosen vessel. It's radical. So now what does he do? For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately, right? Same passion. He proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Saul was such a bad guy that even the other bad guys knew how bad he was, right? They're like, hey, wait a second. You're supposed to be a bad guy. You're supposed to not like unbelievers, What's your deal here? Like they knew how bad he was. And now he's hanging out in the church. I just imagine the first church service he goes into. Someone's like, what? Who let Satan in here? How in the world is he in here? Or how about the first synagogue he goes to? Because back in this day, what would happen is the synagogues were kind of set up that a traveler that was someone of prestige would come in there and he'd be recognized and they would literally hand him the service. Hey, do you have something you would like to teach us? So Saul, because he is a PhD of chameleon, man, first synagogue, they're like, bro, come in, share with us. I can just imagine him opening to Isaiah chapter 53 and reading it. Everyone's like, oh, that's a great, great song. Yes, wonderful. Yeah, mm, brilliant. And then him just saying, yeah, it's Jesus. And they're like, What? Are you joking? It'd be like the NRA saying, you know what, we should repeal the second amendment. right?" Or the ACLU saying, you know, we should really put prayer back in school. We should really do that. Or me saying, I'm a duck now instead of a beaver. Just you'd be like, what? That's insane. It's insane. And he's so good at it that they can't disprove him. He's taking all the education that he's had all of his theology. And now his eyes have been enlightened to the truth of Jesus. And he's using that to make proofs about Jesus. But no one, gets, no one gets saved here. There's no revival. No one's getting saved, right? So something interesting I think happens. Verse 23 says, when many days had passed, like a long time now. So this is, Uh, If you're watching a movie, a little kid, all of a sudden, he's a grown man. You're like, oh man, like 10 years went by. There's some distance, some time gap right here. Many days had passed. The Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul and they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall. Lowering him in a basket. So we saw in verse 17 that immediately he begins preaching the gospel. He's like, man, my eyes have been opened. Everything makes sense to me. What I've been studying for years. I put all the pieces together. He starts proving Jesus is the Christ. No one gets saved. So then when many days had passed, something changes. So here's what people believe. And I agree. In the book of Galatians chapter one, Paul talks about how he gets saved at Damascus, didn't go talk to the elders or the top dudes, but he left and went to the deserts of Arabia and had personal personal conversations with Jesus. So I believe that's what happened right here. He's preaching the gospel. He's proving that Jesus is the Christ. Nothing is working for him. So he's like, okay, that's it. I'm gonna unplug." I'm gonna go out to the desert for a while. He's gonna get his, uh, Warren Wearsby calls it, get his doctorate of the desert. Moses got one. Jesus for 40 days was in the desert. Elijah got one. He's just gonna go and seek Jesus. Now, what was he missing? Here's what I think. He's able to prove by facts, but I don't think he had love at this point. Because later on, he'll say this at 2 Corinthians 5.14, it's the love of Christ that motivates me. He, he had proof and he could you know, throw out all the terms, but he didn't really know Jesus. Because in Philippians 3 verse 10, he says this, I wanna know him. Not know about him, not know facts, I want to know him. There's a big difference between facts and knowing someone, right? So I could say, hey, you know Brad Pitt? Born December 18th, 1963. 54 years old. Lost some weight recently. Going through some tough times, no doubt about it, yeah. But he's now dating this professor, and it looks pretty serious. Looks pretty serious. And when they go out to eat, They always order vegan because they're vegetarians. Fava bean casserole is his favorite. However, he does like to splurge every once in a while at breakfast. He'll have frosted flakes. Yep. With almond milk, of course. Now, if I say all that, what do you think? Matt, you're a freak. Okay, that's fine. (laughs) I'm acting like I know Brad Pitt. I got facts about Brad Pitt. I don't know Brad Pitt. Right? I just looked at a couple of websites that probably some girls run or something. I hope they're girls. I don't know if they're girls. Someone runs. For a freak like me, I don't know. I don't know, <laughs> just something. Right? But they don't know him. There's a big difference between knowing facts and data and details and knowing a person. And too often in Christianity, we think the purpose is to get the right answer. If I just get the right answer, no, it's not. The whole of Christianity is about Christ. It's about Jesus. You got to get Jesus. That's the whole purpose of Christianity. Like in the empire of Rome, it says all roads lead to Rome. In the kingdom, all roads lead to Jesus. Like if you don't know him, you don't know him. And if you have just facts, people sniff it out real fast. You have to know him. So what Saul does here is he says, I need to know Jesus. I got facts, no doubt about it. I might have the right answer for people, but it's not working. So I'm gonna go out to the desert and I'm gonna learn, I'm gonna worship, I'm gonna pray, I'm gonna sing, I'm gonna walk. I'm gonna do that Psalm 1. Blesses is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on it does he meditate day and night. He'll be like a tree planted by the rivers of water and he'll bring forth fruit in his season and whatever he does will prosper. I need to get out there and do that. And he does that. And Galatians tells us he meets with Jesus and then he returns. And when he returns, they're like, we gotta kill him now. He just got dangerous. Before he was just kind of like, oh, that's interesting. He just got dangerous. Now we have to kill him because he knows Jesus now and that's dangerous. Like it takes it to the next level. And so he is let out of a wall it actually says in Galatians that the king of the city was after him. He's doing that much. He's causing so much division in the city that the king is like, we gotta kill this dude. He's, he's that dangerous, you gotta kill him. So they guard the gates and he's let out of a basket. I wonder how he felt when he's being let out of a basket. I'm sure he thought, man, I'm gonna take Damascus. With my theology, with my understanding of Jesus, there's gonna be a revival here. People will be saved. Shares Jesus. No one gets saved. In fact, there's a death warrant out for him. He's put in a basket and lowered over. That's probably the low point, one of the lowest points in Saul's life. You know what he'll say later though? It's 2 Corinthians 11. He talks about how bad life was for him. I've been flogged, I've been shipwrecked. I've been, you know, I fasted many times. He's not saying because I wanted to, but because there's no food. Like it's, read that, everything he goes through. And at the very end of it, he goes, but, but in Damascus, I was let out of a window in a basket. And then he goes on to say, here's what I learned. That when I'm weak, he's strong. And he goes, that was the best moment of my life. The lowest point in my life where I was a complete failure, where I thought I had it all together, the lowest point in my life was the actual moment where I finally learned I can be strong in Jesus. And that transformed him. And he goes, I remember that. It's not what we go through that defines us. Not at all. It's what we've become that defines us. We've become those like a Jacob that learns by wrestling with Jesus to lean on him from that day forward. We walk with a limp because we have to lean on him. It's not what we go through that defines us. It's what we become. And Saul through this is becoming the apostle Paul. It's brilliant. So they let him out. And now I think maybe he had this hope, Jerusalem, the capital of Judaism. They know me there. I'll, I'll hit it out of the park in Jerusalem. And when he'd come to Jerusalem, he attempted to, to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him. I mean, honestly. If Osama bin Laden was still alive and he got saved, would you want him in your community group? No, we're a closed group. We're trying to get really close to each other right now. Maybe in a while, right? So it's totally understandable. Like, is is this guy playing us? But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them, how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace it was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. We'll look at Barnabas a little bit on Sunday. He's brilliant. He's the guy that says, okay, fine. Saul, let's sit down, have some matzo ball soup and you tell me your story. And he listens and says, this guy's a believer. And he starts to share Jesus in Jerusalem. And the hunter now becomes the hunted. The killer now has a price on his head. And so the entire church is like, okay, bro. Hey, Saul, would you take a walk with us? Where are we going? Oh, just just let's let's walk. Hey, we're at the ocean. Yeah, can you get on that ship? Here's a ticket. But it's only one way. Right, go to Tarsus and stay there. So they trade Paul for peace. Was it the right move? I don't know. I mean, they have peace, it says. You know, Luke frames it well. I don't know, but ultimately that's what they do. And he probably had the worst thing ever that had to happen to him. He had to go home to mommy. He's a grown man, 30 to 40, no one knows exactly. And now he has to go home, tail tucked between his legs and go back to mommy. How hard is that? And from what history tells us, there's this great book by N.T. Wright on Paul. It's phenomenal. What history tells us is Saul's dad was a Torah dude. Like had Saul memorizing Torah scriptures when he first learned to talk, like Torah dude. He's got to go back to his dad and be like, dad, I believe in Jesus now. I mean, just imagine that. Here's the closest thing I could think to it. It'd be like, if you had a son that came back and said, I have converted to radical Islam. I believe 9-11 was right, right? You'd be like, ha, ah, ah, ha, oh no. That's what Paul had to do here, Saul. He had to go home to his family and say, I believe in Jesus. And they'd been like, oh, oh. I say that because there are some people that doubt the Bible. Saul's conversion to me is one of the most incredible proofs of the power of Jesus Christ. The only way the conversion of Saul ever makes sense is if it went down exactly like Acts 9 says it went down. It's the only, he gives up everything to believe in Jesus. Family, prestige, education, opportunity. He gets beaten, gets the snot beaten out of, like the only way Saul's conversion makes sense is if it went down exactly like Acts chapter nine. It's one of the best, best proofs of how Jesus works. So here he is. And I tell people this. I think that Saul, a lot of what happens to him in these first moments of his Christianity, it's a spiritual attack. He's being attacked. I see it in Jesus. He gets baptized, Matthew chapter three, What's Matthew chapter four? He's driven into the desert by the spirit and tempted by the evil one. I tell people when they get baptized, hey, man, this is awesome, but know this. You just put the jersey on and you got on the field. You've been in the stands, kicking back, eating hot dogs until now. You just got on the field and now people are like, aha, I know what team you're on now. You got the jersey on. You have to expect it. Expect. You're now no longer neutral. You're not Switzerland anymore. You've taken a side and expect to be attacked. It's Matthew 13, where the seed goes out, right? And the evil one wants to come and steal it out instantly. That's what's gonna happen. So it's it's happening to Saul. So Saul now gets put on the backside and Luke wants to finish up with the church at Jerusalem, get us to Antioch and back to Paul. So we pick up Peter. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydia. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he arose, and all the residents of Lydia and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Eight years in a bed. No wheelchairs back then. You're in a bed. Imagine that for a second. Think about the last eight years of your life and rewind the clock like you couldn't do anything you've done in the last eight years. You're in a bed. How different would your life be? Some would be like, man, that'd be terrible. Others are like, well, my life would be no different, exactly the same. Amazing, no TV, no Netflix, no, be, no books to read, nothing. You're just sitting there 24 hours, seven days a week in a bed. How hard is that? It is brutal. And then Peter comes and I guarantee this, the believers had already prayed for him. And Peter prays and the guy's healed. I say that because there are unique people that are gifted in unique ways. And we can either fight that or we can realize what Paul will say in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We're different parts of the same body. And you rejoice in the strengths other people have. And you're like, oh, that's awesome. I'm glad somebody can do it. And you support them. So Peter has a gift, no doubt about it. So restores him. He's out of his bed. Now in Joppa, a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. I think Tabitha might be a, I'd go by Tabitha, personally. You get a lot of good nicknames with Dorcas. <laughs> and She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydia was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the windows stood beside widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Duke Dor—he's <laughs> going to do it to her—that Dorcas, yeah, that Tabitha. I'll change it. That Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside, knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, "Tabitha, arise!" And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up and he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Two quick points and then we'll go. Number one, Luke is doing something here. The Spirit's doing something here. Because it's elevating Peter, isn't it? Right? These two stories are saying Peter's brilliant. He's amazing. He's preaching the gospel. People are believing. He's healing people. He raised somebody from the dead. Why would Luke do that? Because in chapter 10, he's going to show us, and he still has problems. He's brilliant and he's still broken. Do you know that's every human? There's brilliant parts to every human and in every human there's also, oh, they still do that. Yeah, they still do that. I know, oh, okay. That's what, the, that's what Luke is doing. He's absolutely brilliant. He's leading people to the Lord and he's got this obstacle to faith. And in fact, it sticks with him a long time all the way into Galatians, right? We saw that on Sunday. That's exactly what Luke is doing. We're supposed to pick that up and be like, okay. All right, I'm okay with me. I'm in process too. That the work of sanctification begins the day you believe and it ends the day Jesus says, come home with me. And every day we're supposed to be saying, Jesus, conform me to your image. Jesus, reveal to me if there has been any wicked way in me and lead me on the path everlasting. And when we find things that are broken, we should rejoice because then we get fixed. I didn't even know I was broken that way. Peter didn't know he was broken this way. Oh my goodness. I, God doesn't show any partiality. I didn't even know that. Wow, thank you. We should rejoice. That's the gospel. Number two, notice why they miss Tabitha. Why did they miss her? She was full of good works and acts of love. And the widows come up and they bring all this stuff showing Peter what she had made her good works. I've said this before, but there's a big difference between what a commercial tells you life is and what an obituary tells you life is. Compare them, right? If an obituary was written like a commercial, it'd be like this. You'd go to a funeral and they'd say, oh man, she had great teeth. Woo, white and straight as an arrow. Her clothing was classy. Woo-hoo. Her hair, perfect. The food she ate, best food ever. Oh. Sex, she had the best sex ever. Best body in the world. She drove the coolest cars you can imagine. Had the best house. She's got so much Botox in her face, she will be wrinkle-free for 100 years right? That's what an obituary, if if I'm honest about a commercial, that's what commercials tell you life is. No one does that at a, a, I've never heard that. I've been to a lot of funerals. I've never heard that because we know deep in our hearts, it doesn't really matter. What do they come and say? Her good works and her love. You got to raise her from the dead. Why? Because of her good works and her love. We've got to have her back. I thought to myself, at my funeral, what will people bring? What will they show? I thought about Mark Skudstad. Not that he's gonna die anytime. <laughs> but I thought, they'll bring redeemed marriages. There'll be redeemed marriages brought. Look, look what Mark did for us. Look how he loved us. I thought about Chad Hansen, young people, just getting fired up for Jesus. Dick Worthington. Like Dick Worthington is one of the most amazing men. My, when I grow up, I want to be Dick Worthington. <laughs> he's so positive. He's so, he, he is tirelessly hopeful for every single person. He truly does what God says right here. We think oh, that dude's evil. He's like, no, he's a chosen vessel of God. He just needs to know that. Like that is, it, it, everyone woke up, Dick believed in me. Dick believed in me. I thought, what would they bring for me? There's an old CD I listened to once. It's kind of scratched up. I say that because if you want to live a good life, you live it backwards. What will they say at my funeral? What do I want them to say at my funeral? And what you want them to say at your funeral, you start saying, today, how do I live a life where people will be saying that at my funeral? Oh, the love and the good works. Oh, I want to hear that at my funeral. And it starts today. Jesus, help me to be engaged in your kingdom, to know that I am a chosen vessel of yours, that I have a position in your body, that you've prepared good works for me to walk in in advance, that I can partner with you in that. And tomorrow I want to be about good works and acts of charity. Empower me to do that. And he will. So Jesus... Thank you for the apostle Paul, his conversion, your power, his passion. We see it and we want the same thing for us. I pray that we be a church that doesn't fall into the Damascus church mentality, but rather we see like you see. You said to Samuel, You judge on outward appearance, but I see the heart. May we be a group of people that choose to have the eyes like you have for people, that they're chosen vessels of yours. May we see that about ourselves, Lord. May we have a defense against the enemy's lies and attacks on us that we are broken, and we are. And because we're broken, you don't love us, which is wrong. May we not make those connections that are incorrect. But rather, rather may we know that we're broken and loved by you, chosen vessels, and that you've put a treasure in each of us called your spirit that empowers us to good works and charity. So may we go from here encouraged as vessels of yours to be like Tabitha infecting our world with good works and acts of charity. And I ask this in your name, amen. Amen, Amen. God bless you guys.